And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Revelation 13, verse 1. We're in a series uh, that comes from the, what the uh, orchestra played for the offertory. Praise our faithfulness, strength for today, hope for tomorrow. A look at the book of Revelation. So uh, we're 13, 1 through 10 today. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And this is the word of God. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth on, uh, uh, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over uh, it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword... With the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we have before you this morning your word. And your word is certain and it's true. So we're asking, Father, for the help of your Holy Spirit to understand what you are saying to us, what you're showing us in these pictures. Father, how they apply to us today and tomorrow, where we might live out your gospel. So help, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. A perpetual loser, the frustrated red dragon, stands at the edge of the land and the sea. He's an imposing, ugly red creature with seven heads, with seven crowns, and with uh, ten horns, he vows, as we saw last week, to track down the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the church, the people of God scattered around the world. So as John watches, and borrowing a little bit here from building on what William Hendrickson writes, suddenly this beast, a horrific, terrifying beast, uh, begins to rise out of the water. First, ten horns are visible, each with a crown on its horn. Uh, then seven heads emerge. Then the body, its torso is that of a leopard. And then as it steps out onto the shore, he notices the feet are that of the bear. The mouth is that of a lion. It's roaring, it's angry. And the dragon speaks to the beast, and he gives him authority and power. And then John looks at one of the heads, and it has a mortal wound, but it appears to have been healed. And then to John's amazement, the whole world, except for believers in Jesus Christ, uh, begin to fall down and worship this beast and the dragon. 
And then the beast begins to blaspheme God. God's name. God's dwelling place among his people. And God's people themselves. His charge to the, the charge from the, from the dragon, who is Satan, we saw last week, is go to war against the saints of God and conquer them. Those aren't the words John really expected to hear. He's trying to encourage the church with what he sees in Revelation. But now he hears they'll be conquered. And that's the ferocity of the battle that lies ahead for the people of God, for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, 2,000 years later, the church still faces this relentless enemy, the beast. And today we look at what seems to be the triumph of the beast. So what do we see? How do we respond to it? Let's go to the text. And again, let's see it. First, who or what's the beast? Again, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon, on his seven heads, wears seven crowns. Uh, And he has ten horns. The beast has seven heads as well, but he wears his crowns on uh, on his horns. And we've seen already in Revelation, the numbers 7, the numbers 10, indicate a completeness, uh, a totality. Uh, and here it tells us the incredible power, the authority that, that the beast has received from the dragon. Now to be sure, there's no small amount of speculation um, comparing him to the Antichrist that John mentions in his letters, or the man of lawlessness that uh, Paul writes about. Uh, or simply those who would try to find him in the headlines of yesterday, uh, today, and tomorrow. But got to remember that what John sees, what he describes, is symbolism. And now to the sea, the, uh, to the Hebrew mind, the, the sea is a, is a place of chaos. It's a place of fear. It's a place of uncertainty. It's the unknown. Let me suggest we continue that thought and add to it what Isaiah seventeen twelve says. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the seas. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. So as with the other imagery in Revelation, more probably than some individual, uh, this beast represents uh, the nations. Uh, and the water itself is the nations, and then the beast would be the, 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 the nations, the kingdoms that rise in dominance uh, out of the sea. With the animal imagery, we're, we're taken back to, to Daniel 7, Daniel 2. Remember there that Daniel in both places describes a series of four consecutive earthly kingdoms. And he represents each with an animal. The lion, he said, represented Babylon. Uh, the bear represented the Medes and the Persians that replaced the Babylonians. The leopard represented the Greeks that replaced uh, the, um, uh, the, the Medes and Persians. And the fourth hideous beast in Daniel is, is Rome itself. And as we said before, all the nations that follow Rome. So where Daniel saw four distinct kingdoms, four different animals, John rolls them all together into one. Uh, a, a horrific beast. 
a combination of all the earthly kingdoms all ready to do battle against the church. We also might want to say that in chapter 13, we're going to meet a second beast next week. So the imagery here also goes back to the book of Job, where we, we see a beast in the sea, Leviathan, and we see a beast on the land, Behemoth. Not only does this beast then receive power and authority, but a throne. Because we've gone through Revelation, the only throne we've seen to this point is God's throne. Uh, But now the dragon and the beast present to the world a counterfeit alternative to God's throne. Trying to impress the world to receive their worship. And we see the worship of the world there in in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. Uh, And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? All right, the great spiritual battle we've seen time and again in Revelation is described here really in in new terms. It's described in terms of of worship. Who or what are you going to worship? Central to the world's worship of the beast is how he imitates the lamb. He imitates Jesus. Both the lamb and the beast have horns. Both have been given authority and power over the world. Both have a wound that's been healed. Clearly that's a a parody, an imitation of Jesus' death on the cross. The beast trying to remove the uniqueness of Jesus as one who has defeated death. We also know from Genesis 3 that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. That's the womb. And he did it already. He did it at the cross. So Satan, the dragon, the serpent, is doomed. The beast who, survive, who serves the dragon then appears to the world to have uh, survived that defeat, to have lived on to fight more battles. But likewise, his ultimate doom is sure. A verse you might want to look at later is Isaiah 27.1. And that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that's in the sea. So some look at this and they say the picture of an individual. The earliest suggestion for this was Nero. Nero took his own life, but he was rumored that he would come back to life, and people were sort of expecting him to do that. As you know, Nero did not come back to life. He didn't pull it off. Um, And so Rome, with with Nero's death, seemed to momentarily lose a little bit of its power, its its, uh, swagger, its its grip on the the world, Um, uh, which particularly for, for them, this first century audience, they would remember that. But Domitian, probably the emperor at this point, has brought that back. He's brought back the threat of death and persecution. But as it points in the first century to Rome's demise, it really points to to all earthly kingdoms. Each time an earthly kingdom dies, another kingdom comes to life and rises up. So the world marvels at the power of nations. The world marvels at the power and hope of government. A government determined to conquer the church. And when they're so astonished by the recovery, 
people will follow the beast and they'll place their hope in the kingdom of this world. And so as we look at history in a parody of Christ's resurrection, the kingdoms of this world keep resurrecting and an impressed people worship the triumph. They steal the words of Exodus 15.11. Now those words were originally directed towards God after the uh, Exodus uh, when they sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now notice the world here asks the question, Who's like the beast? Who can fight against him? Maybe we see a picture of this recently as the world comes back from COVID and the governments of the world claim that they're the cause of that recovery. We see world leaders claiming God-like powers. You need to check out uh, the chilling words the New Zealand Prime Minister spoke to the United Nations this week, uh, declaring the need for governments around the world to clamp down on free speech uh, globally. Look at the bill passed by the California legislature sitting on the governor's desk waiting his signature that silences any doctors who would dare to speak out against the majority medical opinion of the day. Doctors must stay silent or be punished. Yes, when I was a child back in the 1900s, picking up on David's illusion, um, it, was, uh, it was presumed that the Soviet Empire sought to defeat the United States and rule the world. Then 30 years ago, we thought Marxism, we thought communism had been finally defeated and shown for, for what bankruptcy it is when the Soviet Union fell. Eastern Europe was liberated and China seemed to harbor a new day uh, of openness to the West. 30 years later, we don't say that. Communism, Marxism, thought, uh, it's been resurrected. It's very much alive in China and Russia. Seeks to take root here in our nation and in Europe. You see, real evil empowers these secular worldviews and false religions like Islam. And yes, they desire the worship that belongs to God alone. It is we've understood for the last 3,000 years from Psalm 2. Supported by Satan himself. These ideologies are, are more wicked, perhaps, than we think. We watch as, as people put their, their hope in government to accomplish these goals, to squelch and, and, and crush the church. Today's headlines are really just a repeat of what the headlines would have been had there been newspapers across the last 2,000 years since Christ's ascension into heaven. As men and women turn anywhere to worship anything, but Jesus. Now George Ladd helps us understand it's not just about politics, it's far more. Here's what he writes. Here's the key to the character and purpose of the beast. It's not merely the exercise of political power. It has the objective of capturing the loyalties of men and women and diverting them from the worship of the true God. To turn from God and submit to the beast is in reality to worship Satan. And one other thing. When we wonder why evil is, well, so evil. We read all those awful crimes in headline news. And we think, how could anybody do such a thing? The awful pictures in our society. Then friends, we have this hideous picture 
to remind us just how evil evil really is. When we contemplate a a Hitler or a Stalin or, or a Putin, think of this beast. Or when cancer, sickness, death decimate the lives of the people we love, like this week, and and we struggle to make sense of it. Remember that all sickness and death itself is a it's just a manifestation of the world's fallenness into evil and sin. And again, here's the hideous picture for us to ponder. This beast shows us what cancer looks like. And then we move to the blasphemy in verses 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So the beast gets authority with his mouth to speak for 42 months. That's the same as the three and a half. It's the same as the 12 or 60 days. It's the number we see again and again in Revelation. Simply refers to the whole time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. Daniel 7 gives us a picture of, of the horns speaking blasphemy. That's seen here. Because the dragon and the beast understand the world's real battle is against God and His people. The beast's self-deification to receive worship is blasphemy because it attempts to rob God of the glory that alone belongs to God. Remember, Roman emperors routinely blasphemed as they claimed deity as Caesar, claiming to be Lord and God. That's the title they gave themselves. Today, while the state doesn't claim deity per se, it now claims the power of deity. To declare what life is. To redefine human sexuality. So what's in view with these haughty and blasphemous words? We think of blasphemy as simply anything uh, that ridicules what is holy. And here it's specifically blasphemy against God and His name. Again, that's from Daniel. See, God's name reveals who He is. We get that revelation in God's Word. Uh, To blaspheme God's name and His Word is to blaspheme God and all His glorious attributes, such as His love and His mercy, His grace, His peace. As we mentioned a moment ago, we're we're witnesses today of blasphemy against God's created order. First, there's the simple attack on God as Creator with the system of evolution. Then an attack on God's creation. For that's why we have an explosion today, an unprecedented explosion of STDs and HIV. It's a rebellion against God. We have the physical mutilation and hormonal destruction of confused children. It's an attack on God. We have the claim that men can have babies. Just let that one go. All right. Um, they can't. All right. Uh, we have the death of babies rather than the sanctity of life. We have the practice of immorality instead of of living moral and righteous lives. G.K. Chesterton was talking about such things way back in 1926. And he said this, We shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two plus two makes four. That's come to pass. In which furious party cries we raise against anybody who says that cows have horns. In which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure. And they'll hang a man for maddening the mob with the news that grass is green. 
century later, here we are. Such is the claim. The world will not allow for absolute truth because absolute truth points to a source of truth and that source of truth is God Himself. The beast also blasts God's dwelling place, literally His tabernacle, His tent. And that God's dwelling place knows in the midst of His people. The Emmanuel principle is that God delights to dwell in the midst of His people and always has. Today that dwelling is the church as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Now we've seen that the church on earth is one with the church in heaven. So some of the church dwells on earth. Some of it dwells in heaven. And this blasphemy of the church in both places uh, leads to the church here today being seen as, as cultural lepers by the world. Such that they really don't want anything to do with the church. But verbal blasphemy is just the start. We have the beast war against the saints. Also, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all people on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Again, the saints on earth, one with the saints in heaven, yet the beast now can only touch the saints on earth. The beast opposes God and his people. He hates anything, anyone devoted to God. And we're stunned to read that he conquers the church. But again, Daniel 7, 21 prepared us for that statement. Already says that. And so we go back to what we just finished singing with. The martyrs cry out, how long? How long back in chapter 6? How long will God allow his people to be killed? To be persecuted and martyred for their faith? And you remember the answer was what? A little longer. A little longer till their number is complete. And you say again, but wait, but we've seen over and over again in Revelation how God protects the church. But friends, that's a spiritual protection. It's eternal protection to be sure. But it doesn't mean that believers will not face persecution. Will not face death. Being killed for their faith. So as the beast triumphs, as government appears to crush the church, we saw again when the two witnesses that represent the church a few chapters ago. The state then is worshipped and honored. All who dwell on earth is Revelation's technical term for, uh, for all the people of the earth who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And so the believers are crushed for not worshiping the beast, hence persecution. Now how does John describe them? He says they're, they're the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the book of the slain Lamb. Now, grammatically, that phrase, before the foundation of the world, can be taken with, with the, the, the book of life, or some think it modifies when Jesus was crucified. Uh, over in Revelation 17, 8, it seems clear, it is clear there, that it's the Lamb's book of life uh, that is referred to here, and so we're going to take it that way. It's talking about the names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, realize what that means for us. The names of all believers in Jesus Christ from Adam until Jesus returns are forever inscribed by God in the book of life and hence are absolutely eternally secure. We will not fear 
For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. Leon Moore spells it out. John wants his little handful of persecuted Christians to see that the thing that matters is the sovereignty of God, not the power of evil. When people's names are written in the book of life, they will not be forgotten. Their place is secure. We sang at the beginning that God is quietly sovereign. And friends, He is. So in verse 9, John alludes to Jeremiah the prophet. His language is partially barred from what Jesus says back in, in chapters 2 and 3 with each of the letters. Uh, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Uh, and so he writes, if anyone's to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If he wants to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. So what's this mean for us? Again, we're warned in advance about the beast's authority, his persecutions, and his slain of unbelievers. While the world worships the beast, we must be ready. Now, Jeremiah, interestingly, was warning unbelievers in his letter, in his prophecy. But John's taken that and turned it to address believers who face persecution, captivity, and death. And it doesn't mean the Lord's lost control. Rather, it's, 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 if God purposes anyone to be persecuted or even, or even die, it's, it's the design of God, His divine plan. As Kistermark reminds us, Satan can only do what God permits him to do. So what about us? Well, today, John himself provides us with the, uh, uh, the application. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In the first century, the Roman Empire seemed invincible. In the early 1940s, Adolf Hitler seemed invincible. Both the Roman Empire and the Nazis tried to crush the church. And both failed. Satan-controlled governments attempting to crush the church will rise and fall and rise again until Christ returned. The ultimate goal and their ultimate defeat will finally take place. So God's word to the church is to exhibit endurance, toughness, and to believe, to have faith, to not walk away, to not follow the world, but to walk before God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, clinging to the word of God, clinging to his grace. As we suggested last week, standing llama-like against the great coyote himself, Satan, and yes, it does seem the beast triumphs when we look around. But that's an appearance only. It's not the ultimate triumph. That belongs to God alone. So yes, persecution comes to the church. We know that. But again, it's a limited, fixed period of time. And as we face that, we must resolve that we will endure. Now friends, it's not just human willpower. It must be coupled with our faith, believing the promises of God, trusting in God's power to enable us to endure, that the amazing grace that saves us is the grace that's kept us safe thus far. It's the grace that leads us home. Uh, the calls to faith in the one who endured the cross for us, dying there for our sins, taking the penalty upon himself and giving us eternal life. And he does it all out of love. As Hebrews 12 tells us, consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
And let me just say, you may be here today and not yet a believer. And we're not trying to scare anybody into the kingdom. But let me say very lovingly, if our faith's not in Jesus, then our faith is in the beast and the dragon. It's one or the other. It's in Rome. It's in Babylon. It's in the United States. It's in the kingdoms of this world that will pass away. And I would just urge you, turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith. Simply taking Jesus at His word that what He did through the cross and resurrection secures our eternity. And therefore, He promises to empower us to endure till the end. So friends, we need to believe the promise and endure. Why? Because the Lamb ultimately triumphs. When Robinson Crusoe's uh, good man Friday asked him, what people have really asked for centuries. You know, why doesn't God just destroy the devil? Uh, Robinson Crusoe gave him the right answer. And it's a simple answer. He said, God will destroy him. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in your word. Father, these are very sobering words today. Uh, Father, um, and so we pray that we'll take them to heart. Father, for the endurance we need, for what we will face, Father, for what, uh, Lord, I know the younger folks here are far more likely to face than I am. Father, give endurance and give the faith to believe, Father, to know that their names as believers are written in the Lamb's book of life and we're secure forever. That, Father, the cry goes up, how long? Father, just a little longer, but the day will come. So, Father, there's anybody here that doesn't yet know the joy of trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They don't have strength for today. They don't have hope for tomorrow. Father, show them your Son, Jesus Christ. Show them the cross. Show them the depth of your love. Show them the hope that you offer to us and draw them to yourself, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.